Good morning, Salt Church. Today's scripture comes from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Keith. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Salt Church, and I'm so excited. You guys are here this morning, a lot of new faces in the room. Uh, We love Greeley. We love UNC, and we just want you to know that you are welcome here. Uh, If you are looking for a spiritual family to belong to, uh, we would love if this would be uh, your new home away from home. Uh, And I'm excited to kick off a brand new mini-series on the core values of our church. And as I was preparing this message, I reminisced on my life, and I've actually been a part of about five churches in my life. And some of these churches really valued Bible preaching. Uh, My wife and I have been in a church uh, where their main value was gifts of the Holy Spirit, all right? You went in there, you never knew what was going to happen, okay? Uh, I grew up in a church uh, where community service was the main value of the church, And then I've also been a part of a church that really valued tradition. Uh, Maybe you can relate. See, everyone and everything has core values. Uh, These are the values that shape what you do. They're what motivates you every day. It's the why behind everything you do. Now, often in organizations and churches, these core values aren't communicated, uh, but they still make the culture. You sense it. You feel it. When you show up, you're like, hmm. I think I know what these people are living for. I think I know what these people are about. So every church, business, family, organization, they all have core values. Uh, For instance, in my family, just a few of our core values, my wife and I try to have this value that people are more important than things. And so when our kids break things, which we know they will, or when they make a mess on the carpet, our goal is not to freak out, get angry, and shame them, but to look at them and say, hey, we love you more than things. You're valuable. You're eternal. You're the most important thing in our life. And we want our kids to know that, that that's a core value. And if you know anything about my family background, 
the Brownies family, we value freedom, okay? Uh, my parents lived simple lives. It's kind of crazy. They never used a credit card, and they never had a car payment. They lived below their means, and we were really free to do a lot of really fun, cool stuff. And so now my wife and I try to model this freedom that they showed me. And if you know anything about my family, like if you try to micromanage us, uh, we like literally will enter into fight or flight mode, okay? So uh, that's just a little bit about my core values. And so over the next four weeks as a church, we want to look at what we value as a church family. And I've been a part of uh, this movement, the Salt Network and the City Light family, for over three years now. And I'm here to say I love it. It's the healthiest church network that I've ever been a part of. And I think partially that's because of the defined core values that we try to live out. And so here at Salt Church, it's really easy to remember because they're guided by directional arrows. We value the gospel down, growth up, community in, and mission out. Where do we get these values? From the Bible. When you look at Paul's epistles, this is usually uh, the direction he takes. Gospel, growth, community, mission. And so we're going to start with the down arrow today of the gospel, because Jesus came down to save us, and it drives all of the other values of our church. Now, you might be here today, and you're like, gospel, really, Keith? Not again. Can't we, like, move past that? And I love what John Randall always says. He says, guys, uh, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. Think of it like this endless ocean or this endless mountain range that you continually get to explore, and it never, ever gets old. See, the gospel is the power not only to save you on that day, but to save you day by day and to give you victory and life and death. And so my main point this morning is this. Jesus came down so we can be born again through the gospel. Uh, But before we jump into the text, I would love if you guys would pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for that gospel truth. Jesus, that you are the son of God. You became the son of man. You came to earth. You came so that we could be born again through this good news, through this message, so we can have new life. Not just salvation one day, but that you would be with us every day, every moment, giving us victory and life and death. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would move in a powerful way, that we could be born again, that you would expand our reality, that we can see the glorious truth of who you are and what you've done for us through the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so my first point this morning, church, is why do we need to be born again? I want to look at John 3, 1 through 5 again. It says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, secretive, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Now, in the United States, did you guys know an interesting fact is that when it comes to rehab and addiction counseling and therapy, Christian organizations have a 70% success rate. 
And secular organizations, non-Christian organizations, only have a 5% success rate. Why is that? And I want to propose it's because the gospel has hidden power, has the power to be born again, the power for new life. Now, the average population in America sees that statistic, and they're like, oh, yeah, that Christianity, religious stuff, like the Denver Rescue Mission Teen Challenge, that's good religious stuff for, like, the addicts and the homeless. But honestly, we don't really want that or need that in our neighborhood. And it's kind of funny. There's a statistic that says 70% of Americans don't want a born-again Christian in their neighborhood. Why? They think they're annoying, and they don't think they need to be born again. And so what we see here today, there's a religious man. He's elite, disciplined, successful. He's like the cream of the crop. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. Now, Nicodemus is a leader, not just of anybody. He's a leader of the Pharisees. Now, the context here is that Rome had conquered all of Israel. And when Rome conquered places, they still allowed people to practice their religion to some degree. And they even gave them a measure of jurisdictional power. Okay, so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and scribes, they were more than religious people. They actually had jurisdictional power. Today, it would be like if the city of Greeley or Weld County came to me and John, and they're like, hey, we want to give you jurisdictional power. You're going to be the attorney general, and I'm going to be the mayor. Like, not a great idea, right? But that's what they did uh, back in this day. So they were religious, yes, but they were more powerful. They were like popular politicians, people, um, for the people. And so this guy, Nicodemus, he has it together to get to this place of affluence. He's structured, He's affluent, he's moral, he's wealthy. In a lot of ways, I think he's kind of like John Elway. He has a resume, he's successful, he's a leader, right? He has money and power. He's just not very good at his job. Like, he needs to step aside, right? Uh, And really what one commentator said, it's that he's probably backdoor politicking. That's why he comes at night. He's probably saying, hey, I have a, a following, a crowd. Jesus, I notice you have power and a following, like, Maybe we can benefit each other here. And what's interesting when you read the Gospels, Jesus is usually very gentle. He's a good listener. He asks great questions. But when it comes to these religious people, honestly, he's really blunt and cuts people off. And it almost comes across as rude. And he cuts off this guy, Nicodemus, who probably looked 30 years older than him, an old, successful person. Jesus is a young-looking 33-year-old. And he says, hey, You don't understand God, and you need to be born again. And so the big question is this, church. Does someone with a great family, someone working on a college degree, someone who has success, has a clean diet, who has no addictions, has good habits, lives in a large house, grew up on the right side of town, is a hard worker and has no criminal record, do they need to be born again just like the addict or the homeless? And to answer this question, you have to understand the story of the Bible. And I love this verse that Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said this, you don't understand the Bible or the scriptures, nor the power of God. So the story of the Bible is like this. God is the creator of everything. If it were a movie, you have the Trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they get together and they make this amazing universe. And then they make the earth and the birds and the fish and the mountains and the seas. And then the pinnacle of all of their creation 
is humanity. We are made in God's image. We are like him in so many ways, music, arts, justice, relationships. In a lot of ways, we're like God and we're the pinnacle of his creation. He places us in a garden. He gives us work to do. And he says, we can have a relationship here. And Adam and Eve are pure and clean and innocent. And he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was basically God saying, I'm God. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what's good and evil. You are man. Don't eat of it. If you do, it will mess up all of creation. But Adam and Eve uh, believe the lie. They say, we don't need God. We should try to be God. I'm going to be the king of my life. I think I'll decide what's right and wrong. Now, every single human being has a corrupt moral compass. We We all do what's right and wrong in our own eyes, and we all do it selfishly. And now as a result, creation is broken. Everything is falling apart. Your relationships fall apart. Your body falls apart. Man, when you hit your 30s, guys, it's crazy. It's terrible, all right? It's already falling apart. I'm dying. Uh, And if you know uh, all the young people in our church, our vehicles are dying too. They're just falling apart constantly, right? Um, There's a pandemic in our church of vehicles breaking down, right? And the reality is this. Sin makes humanity unclean dangerous, selfish, and dirty. So God kicks them out of paradise, uh, but he makes this promise that he's going to restore the relationship and he's going to clean up the mess that we made so he can restore the relationship and bring us back to the tree of life. And so as you follow the Bible, it follows this redemptive story through the book of Genesis and the, the family of Abraham. And God says, through this family, I'm going to redeem uh, the world. And then you get to Exodus and you follow the story of Moses, and it's how God rescues his people out of slavery and he wants his people to have a home. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's literally like everyone's favorite book, right? <laughs> and it's funny. So many people start out with the New Year's resolution I'm going to read the Bible in one year. And they start out super optimistic, right? They're like, Genesis, it's so cool. Uh, Exodus is great. And then they get to Leviticus. And it reminds me of the video game. You guys are all probably too young, but there's this video game called The Oregon Trail. And uh, you started out really optimistic. You're like, man, man, Missouri and Nebraska, these are great states. We're going to make it to Oregon, to the West Coast, California. We're going to make gold. And then, and then you get to Leviticus, and everyone just starts to die. It's like dysentery. It's like cholera. People start dropping like flies. And no one finishes their Bible. Because Leviticus is like this, it's like the Rocky Mountains, just this terrible barrier. All right, so let me explain why people don't get through the book of Leviticus and what it's about. See, in the journey of the Bible, you get to Leviticus, and it's just pages and pages about these ceremonial washings and all this clean clothes that you have to put on and all these sacrifices that you have to make. And you get to Leviticus 16, and it says, you can't just approach God You have to be clean. You have to wash, put new clothes on, and make these sacrifices. And people say, man, why all this cleaning? Why is dirt so bad? And they don't get it. They don't understand. And they give up. So the point of Leviticus is this. You need to be clean to be with God. And dirt is more than just being dirty physically, like having a dirty T-shirt. It's a picture Uh, Now, to give you this illustration, I graduated from high school in 2005, pretty old, but there's a song that came out that still maybe you guys know. 
You guys remember a song that says, they're trying to catch me riding dirty? You guys, you guys remember that? You guys ever heard that song? All right. Now, now, what he's saying in the song is, the police aren't literally trying to catch him with like dirt on his cowboy boots or dirt on his shirt. Like that, that makes no sense, right? But the police are trying to catch him guilty and dirty in that, in that sense. Like they have dirt on him, like catch him with uh, illegal firearms, illegal drugs, or maybe a stolen vehicle. Now that I'm 36 and I have kids, I'm like, yes, if he is riding dirty, uh, please arrest him and put him in jail, okay? Like, <laughs> I got kids, they play on the streets, please keep me safe, all right? Um, so dirt and filth physically is repulsive. It breaks relationships, but it's also so much more. First, it breaks relationships because it's hard to be around. Uh, have you guys ever been like on an elevator in a city and there's a homeless guy on there with you and, and you're not used to that stench and you're like, it's almost so bad. You're like, I'm just going to take the stairs, right? It's sad, but what it shows is that when there's dirt, it puts distance between people. It's hard to be around them. And this is why we clean up for dates, right? There's a lot of young people in here. You're excited for college. You're like, man, I'm excited to go on some dates I'm going to get some of that uh, Chanel number five, use that, some guys, some Hugo Boss, right? You, you wear your best clothes when you go out on a date, right? Now, I have a funny story. Maybe you've heard this before, but I have a friend who wanted to go on a date in Wyoming, and he had a great idea. He was like, I'm going to take this girl on a horseback ride. We're going to share a saddle. She'll have to be close to me, put her arms around me, and he, he got great clothes, great cologne, he was excited. It was a pretty good idea, not going to lie. Um, and that night, he made the mistake of watching John Wayne movies. He's like, man, I really need to impress her. And he's watching this John Wayne movie. And John Wayne rides across this river on his horse. He takes his cowboy hat off, dips it in the river, and drinks the cool water out of his hat, puts it on his head. And he's like, man, if I have that chance tomorrow, I'm going to do that. I'm going to win this girl, all right? So he gets, he, he gets taught how to put a saddle on, takes her on this ride. Her arms are around him. He's like, man, great date, you know, smells good, clean clothes. And they get to this river. You might know where I'm going with this story. And he, he's like, yes, the river, here's my chance. He, he dips his hat in the water, takes a drink, and looks at her. And she actually looks at him like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know, you know. And so they come around the corner. And there's literally like 200 cows upstream just standing in the river pooping and peeing. And he's like, man, I hope that doesn't do anything, you know. And he keeps riding and he starts to get some really intense bowel movements. You know, the kind that like, it sounds like a whale, like in your stomach and you try to hold it. So he's like, I, I can't make any noises. I'm going to hold it all in. And he just tries to hold it. And pretty soon, though, he, he can't hold it. He jumps off the horse. He only makes it about 10 yards. And in front of her, he pulls his pants down and has explosive diarrhea uh, right in front of her. And, and then the worst is there's nothing to wipe with. He has to get back on the horse with her. And, and through the ride, he has to keep jumping off. And he has diarrhea and, and just, you know, food poisoning, basically. And do you guys think that he got a second date? No. No. He was... He was too filthy. There was forever distance between this couple. She couldn't even look him in the eyes, all right, because of the filth. And the reality is this, church, confession. Even though I love my kids, I won't be close to them if they're filthy. And there's going to be two things that happen to every parent. 
All right, you hear a kid crying in their crib or something, and you walk in, and then the kid's like that big, but there's like projectile vomit like on the ceiling, the walls, the carpet. They're covered in it, and it's the worst smell ever. And so what do you do? You awkwardly like carry them over to the shower and just like hose them off, and then you have to get carpet cleaner and put everything in uh, the washing machine, right? And you have to clean them for the relationship to be close again. Like you're not just going to throw them in your bed when they're covered in vomit, right? Now, second, there's going to be a moment for every parent when your kids are taking a bath and one of them starts to cry and you walk in and you're like, what is going on? And it looks like they're soaking in hot chocolate, uh, but it's not hot chocolate. You get what I'm saying? And so what do you do? You awkwardly carry them to the shower, hose them off, and then you use a lot of bleach, like bleach on everything, right? And I think this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He's saying, hey, your religion Nicodemus, your attempt to get clean through your good works before a holy God, it's literally like taking a bath in a little kid's poop water, all right? It will never work. In fact, it's not only polluting you, it's polluting everyone around you. It will never clean you enough to restore you to a relationship with God back to the tree of life. And so the first truth of the gospel is this. You can't clean yourself up. You need someone else to clean you. In fact, you are so dirty, so sinful, God actually opposes us because he's a good and just God. You might say, how and why does God oppose us? Let me explain. See, dirt and sin breaks our relationship with God and others because it makes us guilty. Dirt breaks the relationship judicially. All right, I want you guys to imagine this, if this really happened. Let's imagine Sawyer came and knocked on my house, knocked on the door, and I'm like, bro, what's going on? And he's like, man, I lost my temper, Keith. I actually murdered someone, had some road rage. I'm actually on the run. Can I hide at your house? Uh, I'd be like, man, honestly, Sawyer, I'm a pastor. Like, I have to turn you in. But I'm also conflicted, right? I'm like, dang, Sawyer's my boy. Like, I love him so much. Uh, But man, the reality is I have to be a good pastor. I'm going to have to turn you in. And what's going to happen is me and Sawyer are still going to be friends. I'm just going to have to write him letters when he's in the pen, right? Like, there's going to be distance between our relationship. And that's what sin does between us and God. It creates guilt and creates distance between us and God. And as you read the Old Testament prophets... As you go through the story of the Bible, God poetically talks about this inner conflict that he has. He's like, man, I love my kids so much, but I'm also a really good judge, and I'm just torn. And I love the book of Hosea. You go through it, and it's like God's people were really, really wicked and evil. He's like, man, you guys are sacrificing your kids. You guys are enslaving each other. You mistreat women. You have polygamy. I have to judge you. And then you get to Hosea chapter 11, and it says this. God says, my heart recoils within me. God says, I'm in so much pain. How can I cast you out forever? And so the big question that is proposed through the Bible is this. How can God be with us when we are so sinful, when we are so guilty? And maybe you're here today, and you just don't feel guilty. You don't feel ashamed. And we don't like guilt. Uh, The generation before us followed the teachings of Sigmund Freud, the psychologist. And he said this, 
This is interesting. He said, guilt can be good because it keeps civilization civilized. And without guilt, we're just like the animals. See, the generation before me believed that guilt could actually be good. But America today is postmodern. We don't like truth. We don't like anything from Sigmund Freud. We're influenced by humanism. And like John Randall said, Disney, right? Which is just follow your heart, get rid of your guilt and shame, and just pretend it's not there. Even if what you're doing is immoral, wrong, and against God's design. And you've probably grown up, and that's the message you've heard. Dude, don't feel guilty for that. Don't feel ashamed. Just bury it. And it reminds me of the scene in this really funny movie with Kevin Hart and The Rock. You know, it just sounds like a great movie with those two, right? But there's this scene where The Rock's like, man, high school was hard for me. I was bullied. There was a lot of shame. And, and uh, Kevin Hart looks at The Rock. He's like, hey, man, like, if you ever want to talk about what happened to you in high school, like, I want you to know that I'm here for you, right? And uh, this is what he says. He says, I'm good, man. You know the secret? I just ball it all up really tight, and I just stuff it down really deep, and I just pretty much ignore it. <laughs> and, uh, and Kevin Hart's like, bro, that honestly doesn't sound healthy at all. And I'm here to say, church, it's not healthy to deny that humanity is guilty before a holy God. And so how can we know that humanity is guilty and dirty? I think the best way is through God's Ten Commandments. As I get a drink of water, try to reminisce on what those are. (laughs) It's don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't be angry, um, don't covet. But the reality is, as you read through the Bible, the Ten Commandments, it's something we all do in word or deed or in our hearts. And so if we were to stand before God, judged based on the Ten Commandments, every human would be guilty of sin. The second way we know that humanity is guilty is we are so insecure as people. We don't like to admit it, but we are. And we always run to all of these things to try to clean up our lives. And these things that can be good in a sense, become our gods. And we look to these things to make us clean. Things like a better diet, more money, a better image, a better education, more security, all good things. But we run to these things to make us clean. And one of the ways I think of humanity and how I know we're guilty, it's why me and many of you in here just can't say no to people. Someone asks you to do something, you're like, I really don't want to in my heart, but I just can't say no to you because I just hate disapproval, and I just need people to like me. And it's kind of sick, right? We fear rejection and disapproval. And if you're anything like me, maybe people in this room, this is why sometimes we agonize over our body image. And we think, man, if I can just get other people to like me, maybe this sense of dirt and shame that I carry, maybe I can just get rid of it. And we spend so much time beating ourselves up and trying to look better. So the reality is this, church, everyone is guilty because we all pursue the wrong things that can't clean us and restore us to God. And so whenever you hear the gospel, it's always the bad news first. We're guilty. We can't clean ourselves up. No matter how hard we try, we need someone stronger to step into our story and clean up the mess, which leads to my second point. How then does Jesus make us clean? Let's look at John 3, 9 through 15. It says this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you simple earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things where I came from? See, no one has ascended into heaven except he who came down, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So back in verse 5, Jesus says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. What does he mean? Nicodemus is super confused. He's like, be born again? Do I go back inside my mother? I don't understand. And Jesus is like, how are you a leader and so dumb? Uh, And it's kind of funny. They're both confused by each other, right? Nicodemus is like, man, I I don't understand this guy. And Jesus is like, how is this guy so stupid? Like, you're a leader of religious people. It's kind of funny. And see, what Jesus is saying, when you are born, your life is expanded. Your testimony changes because you speak about what you have seen. And when you go from the womb to the world, things change. You start to breathe air, drink milk, see the sky. Uh, You see things with more clarity, hear things with more clarity. And don't get me wrong, you are 100% alive in the womb, but you don't fully understand the reality outside of you. So being born expands your reality. And Jesus is saying you must be born again spiritually to expand your reality, to go from womb to world to heavenly places where Christ is seated. And Jesus is saying, I came down, the reality is I came down to do what you can't do, to live the perfect life and obey those 10 commandments perfectly and not be insecure and not look to anything else to clean up my life except for a relationship with God and holiness. And then Jesus says, and I came to die the death that you all deserve. I'm here to clean up the mess. See, when he says water in the spirit, He's saying, I'm going to clean you with pure water, a water that's so powerful and so pure, it won't just make you clean. It will remove your guilt so you can be close to God again. And it's really a prophecy of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel said God would clean us and give us a new heart, a new life. See, in Leviticus, it says the high priest couldn't be with God unless he was clean. And one of the ways he was clean was through the blameless, unblemished scapegoat. Now, what is a scapegoat? It's when someone takes the blame to make you innocent and restore your relationship. I'm going to read that one more time. A scapegoat is this, when someone takes the blame to make you innocent and restore your relationship. You go from guilty to innocent. And this is what Jesus does for us on the cross. He is the scapegoat. See, Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, was actually the garbage dump of the city. It was like the landfill. It was the sewer dump. I know this is graphic, but on the cross, it was a bunch of naked men next to Jesus who were sweating in the sun. And human excrement was coming out of them. And it smelled, and it was terrible. And this is a picture that Jesus became the curse, that Jesus became dirty. 
Jesus became the penalty of my sin and your sin to set you free. He took my guilt and your guilt and all the dirt that we have ever had was placed on him. And how does this clean us? I love what John said later. He said, out of Jesus' side came blood and water. Now, if you do the science of crucifixion, it so messed with your body that your blood became like water as your, all your vessels in your body started to burst. And this water would pool right here. And so when they stabbed him in the side after he had died on the cross, blood and water came out. And what John is saying is this pure water from the eternal and invincible Son of God has the power to remove our guilt. Such good news. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. On the cross, Jesus, he became sin who knew no sin so that all of us might become the righteousness of God. And then next, Jesus shows us the path to be born again. How can I receive this blood and water? And I love what Jesus said, to believe to believe that I came down from heaven as the perfect son of God, I came to be lifted up. And he says, just like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, so I am going to be lifted up. Now, you might be here being like, what is the serpent in the wilderness? Well, it's the story of Moses in the wilderness. And uh, there's this story in the Bible. And all the people of God start to complain and grumble against God and against the leadership, Moses and Aaron. So God judges them. And these fiery serpents come out and start biting people. So it's just a great warning. If you ever disobey me and John, God will probably judge you. I'm just kidding. All right, this is Old Testament, different time, okay? Um, But anyways, so picture the scene. They all start to sin. They grumble against the leadership. And these serpents come out and start to bite people. And they're poisonous. And the people cry out to God, God, we're dying. we're, We're sorry. Please forgive us for grumbling and complaining against you. So God gives a word to Moses. He says, hey, get a snake, which is a sign of something being cursed, and raise it up on a tree. And then tell the people, if they come by faith, trust my word, and look at the cursed snake on the tree, they'll be healed. You can imagine being in the camp and you're like, that's the solution? Really? I just got bit by a by a rattlesnake, and you're going to tell me to look at a cursed snake in a tree? And so you know people mocked that, right? But to those who believe the word of God, and they came forward by faith, and they looked at this cursed snake, they didn't fully understand the story of the Bible yet. To them, they were healed. And it's the same today. God comes back to his creation, to his people, And he says, I want you to be healed of this terrible dirt and guilt and poison that is sin. And if you look at me, lifted up on the cross, my blood shed for you, I'll give you new life. I'll heal you of that disease. I will clean you with clean water. And he's saying, if you want life, you want satisfaction, you want redemption, look to the Son of God, cursed, hung on a tree. And church, the evidence that you know you were born again is that the Spirit of God, like Jesus says, comes and assures you that, in fact, you are a child of God. See, when people ask me and say, hey, is your dad Carl Browneyes, like the legendary forest ranger smoke jumper? I'm like, yes, he is my dad, all right? It's kind of a big deal where I'm from. But anyways, I don't say this. I don't say, "Uh, I don't know, maybe Honestly, I'm trying really hard. No, I know with confidence that he's my father. 
And that's why Jesus sends the spirit. He wants you to know without a shadow of a doubt that since he died on the cross for you, that the spirit of God is coming back into your life and you can know with assurance that your identity is not dirty. You are clean. Your identity is not guilty. Your identity is forgiven because Jesus paid it all and you've looked to him and you've believed it. It reminds me of the story, I'm going to close with this story, uh, of a guy with a really weird name. His first name was Brownlow. Great name, okay, if you're having kids in the future. Brownlow North. But he was a pastor in the early 1800s. And one day before he got in the pulpit, there were a bunch of people in the church who found out about his past life of sin before he was born again. And they wrote this laundry list of sin, um, And he felt really anxious and really nervous. And he questioned himself, maybe I shouldn't share the gospel. Maybe I'm a failure. Maybe I can't serve in the church. Maybe I can't be in Christian community. Maybe I've messed up too much. But he remembered that he was born again. He was forgiven. And this is what he did. He stood up before the church. He pulled out the letter. And he said this. All that is here said is true. And it is a correct picture picture of the degraded sinner that I once was. And oh, how wonderful must the grace be that could quicken and raise me up from such a death and trespasses and sin and make me what I appear to before you tonight, a vessel of mercy, one who knows that all his past sins have been cleansed away through the atoning blood of the Lamb. And in that moment, he knew the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all forgiven. And he knew he was a beloved child of God, no matter what anybody else was saying. He wasn't dirty. He was clean. He was pure, and he was washed. And so if you're here today, Salt Church, and you're tired of trying to be somebody, trying to measure up, look up to the cross and be washed by the blood and the water. And remember, you are a child of God if you believe in Christ. If you're here today and you're just agonized about your body image and you feel shame, look to the cross and be washed by the blood and the water. And know this, that the only eyes that matter, the king of the universe, he sees you. He doesn't see shame. He doesn't see disgust. He sees beauty He sees love, and he's just beaming with fatherly love for you. And if you're here today, and you feel regret and guilt and shame because of the things that you've done in your life, you've hurt the people that are closest to you, I want you to look up to the cross and see that Jesus will forgive you. He paid it all, and he can give you even new life today. And if you're here today, and you feel like an outsider you feel lonely, you just moved to this city and community, you feel like you don't fit in, Jesus says, I've been there. But I became the outsider to bring you home, to bring you into the family of God. And if you're here today and you don't know God and you want to know him, look to the cross, see the blood and the water flowing freely for you and say yes to Jesus. Say, I believe it, I receive it. Jesus, make me new. Make me clean. Make me born again. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word 
from John 3 to be born again. And Lord, we thank you that you came to do what we can't do, to expand our reality, to see the fact that we can't clean ourselves. We're like a helpless, hopeless baby that's covered in blood and filth, and we're cold, and there's nothing we can do. But God, you are the good father who comes and cleans us and washes us and wraps us and gives us a home and gives us a name. And so I pray, Lord, that those who are born again in here, Lord, that you would expand their reality, fill them with the spirit, that they can know with assurance that they are children of God, that they could have victory in life day to day. And for those of us, Lord, who are in the room and who are like, man, I don't know this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing, and they sense shame and insecurity, and I know they're, they're looking for something. Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit, you would reveal that everything I said today is true. Jesus, that you are the son of God, that sin creates distance. And Lord, a life without you is the most miserable thing we could ever imagine. And an eternity without you is the most miserable thing we could ever imagine. But Jesus, you shed your blood so that we could be near. And it's amazing, Jesus. You just call us to believe, to look up, and to say yes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.